0: So hard. Ooh, Lord, my so hard. don't know my trouble but God. don't know my trouble but God. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show and uh, what a show we have for you today. It's it's really uh, quite an honor uh, to have this guest. Uh, Renaldo Walcott is a professor of the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. His research is in the area of Black Diaspora Cultural Studies, Gender and Sexuality. And of course, I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo. So we are always most interested in what you have to say. So please do send your questions in once you've heard this. Uh, certainly, I'll send them on to Ronaldo or try to answer them if I can. And of course, any comments. We love to hear from you, whether you're hearing this. On the last alternative radio station left in Toronto, CIUT 89.5 FM or on podcast near you, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever. Um, Rinaldo, is it okay if I call you Rinaldo?
1: yes it is okay if you call me ronaldo sherry
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you um first of all i have to say your book on property which is what we're going to be speaking about in the next little while is is quite amazing i mean one of the things i loved about it there are many but one of the things i loved about it was it was kind of a a synopsis of the abolition movement and it's just chock full of facts and figures which people need when they're entering into these discussions and also there's this kind of toronto slant which is cool for a hometown girl here. <laughs> you, know, like it's, you, know, you talk about demonstrations that I've been at, and many of our listeners have been at, and uh, so it kind of brings it home a little bit too. Um, maybe just start by, by talking about what made you write it.
1: Yeah, well, what made me write it was that in the aftermath of the, of the, the very public murder of George Floyd, um, I was having a conversation on The Current with Matt Galloway, and um, towards the end of the conversation, um, I think he posed a question to me, something like, um, how will we eventually deal with these kinds of issues? And I, and I said to him, well, we can't actually deal with these issues unless we really begin to deal with property, and we really de- begin to understand how property organizes our lives. And um, Dan Wells, the publisher of bibliosis heard me make that comment and reached out to me. We had been talking about something else prior and he reached out to me and asked me if I was interested in extending that comment. And of course, since I'd been thinking about property and freedom and policing and a range of issues for quite a while, um, it made perfect sense. Then when he explained to me that um, he had this pamphlet series that even excited me more because what he didn't know is that I've always wanted to write a pamphlet. (laughs) So so, um, that's how it came to be.
0: Yeah. As an old socialist, I have to say that, you know, I think most people have learned about socialism and, and, and Marxism and, you know, through pamphlets. I mean, let's face it. How many people have actually read Das Kapital? You know. Um, but exactly. anyway. <laughs> um, speaking here to Ronaldo uh, Walcott, Professor Ronaldo Walcott about uh, on property, his new book. Um, so you make this this beautiful connection between the abolition movement uh, of the you know, abolishing of slavery to the abolition of police. Uh, maybe you know fill in that for a lot of listeners who who you know like, you know, defunding the police as a, as a core demand of Black Lives Matter has been around for a bit. And I think we've kind of come around as society to think, oh, yeah, some things could be done better. Right. I mean, mental health calls, you know, why, you know, not decriminalize drugs, etc. etc. et cetera. But the, the idea of abolition, you know, sometimes, you know, people start, you know, kind of sticks in their craw. And what I love about your book is that you make this connection that the reason police are around in the first place is, in Canada. The reason the RCMP are around in the first place is to is to actually manage the property of bodies. You know, Indigenous and Black. So maybe you know, connect that for us.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I that I that I one of the arguments that I'm making in the book is that our contemporary abolition movement has a history to it, and that that history is the abolition of slavery and in, in um, plantation slavery in the Americas and in towns and cities in North America, and, and the way in which that historic movement is tied to the evolution of policing. That you know, modern policing began as a form of white rule and regulation of black people moving within the context of slavery in the Americas. So the evolution to End plantation slavery to end slavery in the Americas um, remain unfinished. And as modern policing evolved, one of the things that we noticed in its evolution is that it continued to um, interrupt, to put it in the mildest possible terms, the lives of black and indigenous people. And one of the reasons that it has to do that is because black and indigenous people are a reminder of the foundations of the places that we live now. And because black and indigenous people represent not only forced migration and forced labor into the Americas for black people and indigenous people represent and continue to represent the usurping and the stealing of their of their homelands. Um, policing then steps into place to regulate that and to make their resistance, to make our resistance appear as anathema to the normal way of doing things. So this book is an attempt to give a snapshot of how the history of that first really important abolitionist movement is extended now into the present um, around calls to abolish the police. But the call to abolish the police is really a call to transform our society. It doesn't. It's not about stopping at the police as an institution. It's really about transforming the society so that those who have been made um, the most disadvantaged by the accumulated histories of enslavement and colonization can begin to imagine and partake in a much more equitable distribution of the earth's resources.
0: Uh, one of the uh, authors and mentors that you you cite frequently is Angela Davis, and of uh, of course um, uh, there's few better um, but in her talk about the abolition of the of the carceral system which uh, you call a punishment system um, uh, in part a but i and and i think that has been a movement that has been going on for for, for decades now uh, i read somewhere a stat that there are now more black bodies uh, working for basically a slave's dollar a day in, in the in the carceral system than there were slaves Uh, Under slavery, Uh, it's a shocking number. Um, Say something about the prison system, too, because uh, often we we talk about police and, and, you know, don't talk about what police, you know, end up, you know, where they end up putting people. Yeah, talk about prisons.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes when we look at the actual numbers and stats around prisons in Canada and the U.S., um, what we find is really staggering. So for instance, we know that in the mid 2000s in Canada, and in Canada, black and indigenous populations in prison um, rose between something like 50 to 70%. That while black and indigenous people are um, something like, um, while black people, for instance, are something like 1.2% of the Canadian national um population they represent something like um 60 to 70 percent of people in national in, in federal prisons so you know the disproportionate and that word doesn't really cover what's happening here but it's the only word i have right now the disproportionate distribution of who ends up in prison who ends up in prisons for longer periods of time who are not offered bail um, who are immediately arrested and incarcerated. The figures are just staggering when you begin to look at them. And you know, people can go to, to websites like the John Howard website to review some of the, the stats there. But on the other side of the border in the US and both in Canada too, even though we have less stats on this, what you begin to see when you look at the numbers of the organizations that are keeping watch over these practices is that you see the replication of the plantation in the prison industrial complex. So it's not only that prisoners are incarcerated and forced to work for really low wages, but what you see also the prisons are populated with Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people. And then the people who are running the prisons who are the are largely white. So you've got this disproportionate number of incarcerated non-white people. And then the administrators, the prison guards are disproportionately um, the, the workers in, in these institutions. And so what we see is the replication of um, the plantation system moved now from the land into urban and, and suburban areas so that the prison itself has now become a, part, a central part of modern economies of the West. And that's one of the most chilling things that when I was writing this book and having to consider how prisons are now one pillar of our economic scaffolding. And therefore, I I propose that, you know, if we are to abolish the police, if we are to transform the society, that we have to also think deeply about the pillars of our economic, that hold up our economic scaffolding.
0: Uh, speaking here to Renaldo Walcott on his new book, his terrific book on property. Um, and uh, and so let's talk about the property part of this book, which is um, which is, is is kind of a leap for some, I think, from the abolition movement, but you make it intrinsic, and I think it is. Uh, and and the immediate thought, and I have to say uh, that, uh, your host here, Sherry Genova. We were speaking about this in at our church. We've had an anti-racism group that's been meeting for many, many months, looking at various works. And uh, this was a book that we discussed just this week, and you know, loved. So, so you know that. Um, but one of the things that people tend to think about, especially people who own property, whether it's just a little, you know, bachelor condo or whatever, is you know. And I remember, as you know, a former member of provincial parliament, the NDP at one point in their history brought in uh, a bill just to tax estates, just to tax property, which people don't realize Americans do that. We don't up here in Canada. Um, And and it was wildly unpopular, like wildly unpopular. (laughs) And not just among those who, of course, own the means of production or extremely wealthy, but, you know, sort of working class folks who that's their only... The only thing they have to pass on to their kids, you know. So it really strikes deep into our hearts. So talk about that kind of core fear of, of around property and 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 yes, I mean the the fear is that our you know our children or offspring won't won't eat, won't have a place to sleep, won't you know whatever our fear go goes to that if we can't provide this and this is the only way we can accumulate our own little piece of wealth. Um, so that maybe speak about that, that core fear that when you speak about abolishing private property really gets people going.
1: Well, first of all, I, I want to extend thanks to your reading group um, for reading the book and engaging with it. That, that, that's a real honor and, and a pleasure to hear. And yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do in the book um, is I talk about the fact that Black people came to the Americas as the property of others. And I make the case that because of that, Black people have a particular kind of special relationship to property, having once been property or But also, um, you know, Black women in the context of of slavery, the children children followed the mother, so the children became property too. And so this idea of property that I I write about in the book is not just about land and resources. And it's not just about the things like our houses and our cars and our cell phones and our jewelry that is really special to us. It's the idea that property infuses and organizes all of our social relations. So the idea of abolishing property is not to take away our individual cars and houses and so on, but it's to rethink what property does so that housing should not be where we have to seek our retirement. Housing should not be um, something that is scarce. Housing should be, as we're coming to realize, a fundamental human right. Once we begin to think about housing that way, something shifts, something shifts about ownership. And what I'm trying to suggest is that the abolition of property will allow us to be, all become responsible for all of the Earth's resources, including the technologies and other inventions that we have as a as, as human beings collectively um, created over the last 500 plus years. And that to do so would require us to more equitably re- dis- redistribute those those. Resources so that property then is collectively owned, deliberatively um, considered, and distributed, as opposed to hoarded by smaller and smaller groups of people. What we are seeing in the context of late capitalism is that the idea that you know that our property, our wealth, our responsibilities located in our house, our expensive car. Or jewelry, or cell phones. That's not really at issue. What's really happening is the concentration of the earth's resources, both material and otherwise, into the hands of a smaller and smaller number of people, thereby um, confusing us with what actually property is and what it does. So yes, we don't want to take away your house. Everyone should have the, the rights to a house, but a house should not be the basis upon whether or not you're able to live a good life or a terrible life. You know, in the city of Toronto, where I think both you and I are, Sherry, there's something like between eight and 10,000 people living on the streets. To address that, that significant problem, and then when we think about it nationally, requires that we think differently, for instance, about housing as property. Um, It requires that we think differently about what it means to create the kind of society that people see their house as their retirement program. And so, you know, the question of abolishing property is both about, one, about how we can uh, allow to rethink a history of stolen bodies and stolen lands and how we can now take all of the massive resources that we have accumulated in this world, that we know if, if they were equally distributed, would have a significant impact on how people live their lives and begin to process, begin to put into place new foundations for making that happen. The last thing I'll say about this is what I'm suggesting in the book by The Abolition of Property is to say that what we come to understand and know as property has been built and accumulated. And we have been tutelaged into this understanding over 500 years. And it's going to take us many, many years to tutelage ourselves out of it and to lay new foundations for a different way of living collectively well together. And that's ultimately what the book is about, provoking a conversation about what we will need to do now to begin to lay the foundations for how we can collectively live better together.
0: Speaking to Renaldo Walcott here on the Radical Reverend show, and and just a note to all of you uh, listeners, uh, uh, do you know send your comments along? I always respond, and I always am intrigued by what you have to say. So, so be part of the conversation. Um, I wanted to go back and loop back, Renaldo, to your upbringing and your childhood, and what uh, kind of brought you to this place. One of the intriguing. Uh, aspects uh, of your upbringing was your the appeal of Rastafarianism in your life. So talk a little bit about that. I'm, you know, you people are listening to this. They're not seeing it, but you got dreads, <laughs> and they're cool. Um, so, so just talk maybe about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I was born in Barbados, and um, you know, in in my in my very early teens before I, I moved to Canada. Um, it, but between the ages like ten and fourteen, you know, Rastafarians began to really make a strong impression on me. But they also began to make a really strong impression on the island where I was born. And part of that strong impression was that those in authority wrote them off as um, as mad, right? That that this insurgent religious practice that called for collective orientation to life. Um, was written off as, as, as crazy, as loopy. And, and of course, you know, over the years, Rastafarians have come to mean something quite different than something else. But one of the things that attracted me to Rastafarianism was the manner in which they spoke of liberation. They would liberate fruit from trees. Um, they were very interested in communities and communal forms of sharing and living together. And they were also interested in my dreadlocks, which I obviously get from them as a part of this. they were interested in a different kind of comportment in refusing the norm as the way of being. And so, you know, this thing remembering, seeing sometimes um, Rastafarians being taken off by the police and mental health workers for doing something as simple as taking fruit from someone else's yard um, really stayed with me all those years. And I think that obviously the hairstyle is a, is a part of that refusal. And so um, their, their response best encapsulated by you know, the global superstar Bob, Bob Marley is, is one of a righteous response to injustice. And that to me is founded in what we today call the abolitionist movement, um, that they, they refuse to simply see injustice and not respond to it, the refusal to um, to move, carry on with things as if they were normal um, has been inspiring to me all these years, even though as a Black queer man in many rastafarian circles I would not be welcome.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Uh, Thank you for that. Um, Again, speaking to Rinaldo Walcott here about his book um, on property, and please uh, do pick it up and order it. Don't do it uh, through the biggies. Uh, Do it through your local bookstore, just a suggestion. (laughs) Keep our local bookstores open. Um, Yeah, uh, one of the questions that came out of our study group was, and it it was kind of a statement slash question, but it was like, But haven't we made progress? You know, I mean, we've had a, you know, we see a black president, Obama. You see, uh, especially in police forces in the states, more and more representation of BIPOC folk. Um, You know, uh, laws have shifted. Isn't everything looking better? Was kind of the, the feeling. And then we got into a discussion about kind of reform versus, you know, something or incrementalism versus you know, maybe revolution. You know, as such as it may be, but I mean, maybe speak to that that feeling that people have that, yeah. But it used to be worse, didn't it? And aren't we making
1: progress? A wonderful question. And of course we've made reform. And of course there are more faces that are not white in these institutions. But one of the one of the the pernicious problems, especially of policing, and the prison industrial complex is that as much as we see some change faces, um, what we don't see is a change in the shape of the institution itself. So we can have a black president of the US and the global South still be the place where all the bombs fall, (laughs) right? We can still be bombing Somalia and elsewhere. We can have black police chiefs and women police commissioners and Black and Indigenous and poor people, poor white people included, still be the targeting of policing. So the argument is really about the shape of these institutions and what these institutions are set up to do, who they're set up to keep in place, and so on. But the other thing that is really difficult to for us to have to deal with, and this is why reform um, only gets us so far, Sherry, you and I are talking a few days after a 21 year old white man whose name I will not say, murdered eight Asian women. And we watched as black police chiefs, even an indigenous police officer, white police officers came before television cameras and repeated the words that this murderer said, that he was trying to deal with a problem. What we see in those images is the way in which it doesn't matter who is standing in front of us. The logic, the logic of white supremacy shapes how the information is received and conveyed to us. So one of the things that we've had to deal with since the 1960s, the the upheavals of the 1960s, that threatened to really change the world that folks were living in then, is that representative democracies and late capitalism has been able to pick black and women and indigenous and Asian and so on and put them into high places, but to keep keep those places as structurally the same. And so that's been one of the outcomes that we're struggling with, with here. And why is that abolition over the last decade or so has become such a potent force among activist communities and more and more it's winning over more people to understand that we can actually remake the terms and conditions of how we live collectively together.
0: Uh, speaking uh, to Rinaldo Walcott here on the Radical Reverend Show, um, and, and I was thinking, Rinaldo, as you were speaking, and so eloquently, thank you, uh, about the issue. And <laughs> here I, you know, I, I work in a church now, was working in government, and you're sitting working at University of Toronto, and we're dealing with our own institutions, right? Um, uh, I just uh, finished another uh uh, book uh, on the undercommons with, you know, Moten. And I love the fact that you, you quote uh, one of his, his lines, which is so beautiful that, you know, um, to add to Marxism that, you know, when you're dealing with uh, black bodies and, and black people, you're dealing with a commodity that screams. that's such a beautiful line. And um, uh, and I wish I had another half hour to go into that. But anyway, I'll leave that out there for you listening to investigate on your own time. A, a number of the questions that came up in our book study group centered around, yes, you know, this is a great book on property. And we agree. Now, how do we get there from here? What do we do? You know, uh, and you kind of, you, you know, you sketch that out. I mean, a would be difficult to prescribe, but how do we get there from here? Like, what should we all be doing now to make that world a reality and not just a topic of conversation? Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I think that some of what we have to do is that we have to change the questions that we ask of the society that we live in. I think most of us know that what we're currently, presently live in is not satisfactory. So we have to begin to ask ourselves, what can we begin to put into place that would make life for those of us now and those coming in the future much more satisfactory? So in the midst of COVID, which we remain in this pandemic, our political leaders were all about how we're gonna build back better. Now, I personally have not seen them begin to do anything that suggests we're gonna build back better. But I think that those of us who are engaged in the political process have to begin to hold them to that idea. And we need to put on the table the kinds of things that would mean building back better and hold them accountable to them. So for instance, you know, we need paid sick days for those who are who make the lowest wages, um, who are now seen as essential workers, but have no access to compensation if they fall ill. We need guaranteed housing for people who are unhoused. We need people to be paid a livable wage. These are all kinds of things that we can begin to put into place right now as the foundation for a new society. We need to begin to decarcerate, meaning we need to move more and more people out of prisons, so we have all these little piecemeal projects going on. Where you know one city is is, is um, decriminalizing drug use and so on. We need these programs and practices to be much more broad based and 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 to constitute a new foundation for a different kind of society moving forward. And those of us who are politically engaged must begin to do this work and hold these folks accountable. One of the things that I have learned from Mariam Kaba, um, who's a really important um, prison abolitionist in the US, is that Kaba will continually remind us that it actually does not take a lot of people to move things along. And so that's in part what I'm suggesting in this work too, that those of us who are politically engaged, who are willing to put something on the line for fundamental transformative change, that now was the time for us to begin to do that work.
0: That's a wonderful way of ending uh, the program, and I, I, I mean, there's so much more we could speak about here um, with Renaldo Walcott in his book on property. Do buy it, <laughs> uh, and do read it, and do act on it. Um, I, I immediately thought as you were speaking, Renaldo, again about the fact that we can't even get a 10 percent defunding through our Toronto City Council, or let's put it this way, and perhaps better refunding of putting that money into something else else into a mental health response or into housing or into anything Um, so uh, there's something you can all work out there in listener land um, and as well as all the issues that Rinaldo just mentioned Uh, there's so many so keep busy um, bring the book to life (laughs) and read the book Uh, Rinaldo Walcott uh, Professor Walcott thank you so much for being on the Radical Reverend show
1: thank you so much for having me Sherry
0: Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And wasn't that something with Ronaldo? Please uh, go out, buy the book. Don't, uh, you know, don't order it from that big, big, unnameable source. Uh, go to your local bookstore. Um, give them a nod. Uh, they will deliver. I do it all the time. Uh, and my second guest, uh, equally exciting, is uh, Fred Hahn, Um He's my go-to union guy for a lot of things, but I I want to let you know why he should be yours. Uh, First of all, since 2010, he's the head of Ontario's largest public union, CUPE, and was the first LGBTQ person to head a provincial union of that size. Uh, And they also are responsible for some 55,000 people in the education sector. So that's one of the areas that I really want to talk to him about. So Fred, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks for the
2: invitation, Sherry. It's so great to be here with you.
0: So let's start off talking about schools, because as you're probably aware, and many people are that follow me, I'm on Twitter a lot these days, giving voice to a whole lot of frightened people in the educational system um, for various reasons. We've seen a number of school closings, particularly in the last week or so. Um, And, you know, again, uh, we were hearing the education minister saying, oh, it's safe. It's all safe. Don't worry about it. Um, And we still have these huge cohorts and classes. We have kids eating lunches in lunchrooms without masks. And kids are kids, right? So, so again, um, this is what I'm hearing. And I I think, first of all, I, I wanted you to talk about this fear of just even speaking out. And I'm sure it's not just in the educational system, but I'm sure you hear this from members who are so frightened about, you know, possibly losing their job even in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe say a few words about that.
2: Certainly, you know I. Um, I'll start by just saying uh, I want to pay some homage to our school board bargaining council. We have a structure that represents all of our school board members, and the president uh, of our bargaining council, Laura Walton. Uh, many of you, uh, I'm sure, will have heard of her. Uh, they do amazing work with our members in schools. We we do represent fifty five thousand folks who, basically, you know, who in a school, if you think about, you know, there's teachers and there's principals and everyone else. Everyone else is a member of CUPE, you know, the school secretary and the custodian and the speech and language pathologist and the education assistant and the early childhood educator and the lunchroom supervisor, like, and many, 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 other jobs. Um, and it's been really challenging for them as it has been for members uh, across uh, all of the different sectors of our union. But this question of speaking up is a really important one, because I do think that um. It's always been a challenge in the broader public sector, employers, uh, some employers take the position uh, that you you can't tell tales at a school, you can't speak about what happens in the workplace. They actually, some employers have policy that prevents a worker from speaking out about what happens in their workplace. Uh, You know, we have defended members who have been terminated by employers for speaking out? Um, uh, you know, most recently, I mean, there are many different s- examples, but one of the most recent ones that I, I know our union is quite proud of, we had a hospital worker in North Bay who spoke out about violence in that workplace and about the employer's lack of. Uh, Uh, any response to years of workers saying like we need better uh, measures and better protection and better response when there are violent incidents at work Uh, and she spoke to the media and they terminated her and we went through a long process in arbitration to defend her and we not only won her her job back uh, but we won her damages from that employer because in fact um, and it's important for people to know this uh, you can have people can have a workplace policy employers can try to do that stuff but we have you know, the right of free speech in our country. Uh, and when, when it comes down to it, and when, uh, when an arbitrator or a judge or somebody has to look at that, uh, they will find in favor of our ability to just speak up and tell the truth. Now, that might be cold comfort to somebody who is just struggling. And you identified this, eh? like people in our schools, like in our hospitals, in our long-term care facilities, in our social service agencies, in our municipalities, people are struggling they're really just one of the things we hear from our members you know they they're taking it day by day they are trying to get through day by day they are having in some cases very difficult discussions with their employer about just providing them personal protective equipment like we're a year in here, eh. And like I get that maybe a year ago there might have been some wonder about, you know, should a worker have to wear, you know, pr- we should so be over that, but we still got people who are literally engaged in in arguing with their employer that they deserve personal protective equipment to keep them safe at work. That's happening in schools, but it is still happening, shockingly, in long-term care facilities, where if there was any place in the broader public sector that I think if you asked anyone, gee, like they probably learned their lesson there, eh? Like they must be giving people uh, proper masks and proper protective equipment. No, we are still arguing in some settings, even though there are government directives, mainly in for-profit uh, facilities where you know employers uh, prioritize profit uh, over, uh, over the, the lives of the people who live there and the lives of the people who work there. Uh, sorry, once you get me going, uh, I, I start to go. It's all kind of connected, right? And so certainly our members in schools uh, face this challenge like others do, uh, the, the pressure from the employer to not speak up. Uh, coupled with, uh, you, there's only so much energy uh, that people got and they're worried about their own families Uh, They're worried about their parents uh, getting uh, access to a vaccine. They're worried about themselves getting access to a vaccine. They're worried about what's going to happen at work today. They're worried about whether or not their school is going to close. They're worried about the kids that they support. There's a lot of things to worry about. And so, uh, you know, I have so much respect for our members who are doing this work every day. Uh, And uh, I do get emotional about it because I, I, I often say I am proud to be in my union, and I am uh, this year I've never been so proud. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it is, yeah, it's incredible. And, uh, uh just to quote, I mean, I, I've done a number of shows on, you know, long-term care with, you know, champions like Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and others um, about how horrendous that has been. And I've stood in demonstrations during COVID out in front of them. Um, and uh, it's it seems now like because many of them, not all of them have been, you know, vaccinated that, you know, the, the, the eyeballs are off long-term care and onto schools. But we should not forget, as you've said, that it's still a problem area, a real problem area. Um, getting to schools now, I mean, I just some of the, the stories that I've heard are are, are shocking. Um, and just like you, I'm astounded that we are asking people to go and do these jobs all the time and not giving them, you know, they, they people are buying their own hep filters, you know, they're... <laughs> In, in, in school buildings, I, you know, people are going into school buildings when they don't have to, you know, teach virtually. It's insane. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, one comment really kind of got to me, and this was just yesterday. Somebody said, you know, thank you for giving voice to some of our voices. We don't feel like we can speak out, which you just addressed. So please, please, yes, I was going to say, isn't that illegal? People should be allowed to speak out. Yes, please speak out. Um, and I replied and I said, well, thank you for risking your life for us. Yeah, I mean, and that's really what we're asking a lot of frontline workers to do is risking their lives for us. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question about that because, you know, the, you know, people are going in, as you say, day after day after day. And the question has arisen. So, so why not a strike? Why not call in, you know, have a, have a call in sick day right across the sector? You know, why to talk about that as, as sure. you know, the head of, of Ontario's Biggest Public Union.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, I, what I will say is that at the beginning of this, uh, our members, like everyone, like all of us, were sort of terrified. It was so unknown. We didn't know what we were dealing with. None of us had ever lived through a circumstance where we've got the Premier of the province and the Prime Minister of the country and world, around the world countries are closing down and we've got this, you know, there's a lot of fear and so much uncertainty. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that I also am quite proud of our, of our members is that they really also their go-to place was how do we help. In fact, we had members who were uh, incredibly uh, heroic. Uh, You know, in municipalities, for example, administrative staff, people who do uh, important tasks said, uh, hey, like, you need people in a homeless shelter? Like, put me there. You need people in a, like, uh, so our members first go to place. Like, I think uh, many folks wanted to figure out how we could help to get us through this. Um, And that was really uh, a focus for such a long time. I think as we sort of got our feet under us and people started to see uh, you know, sort of the broader needs for safety and the lack of response uh, from some employers and certainly uh, as much as we heard good spin, boy oh boy, uh, I just think back to March and April of last year, it, you know, the, the way the right conservatives were talking, sounded you know, like a lot of people were quite shocked, right? Like he sounded like he's gonna listen to science and he's really taking this seriously and he's gonna invest money and he's gonna no holds barred. We're gonna, I would give them the bank if I could. We're gonna put an iron ring around things. Our schools are gonna be the safest in the country. It was almost like that, like, you know, there was a guy down south who used to talk in this hyperbolic way. But anyway, I digress. Uh, And people I think wanted to believe that. Uh, And now I think, you know, increasingly people are seeing that that isn't the case. and so, you know, I often say about CUPE that we've got everything under the sun. We're a very large union. We have 280,000 members in all kinds, five different sectors, 55,000 folks in schools, as, as you noted. And, I, you know, we've got a, a section of our members who are, you know, who are fed up and who want us, who want to do more and who would like us to say, like, why don't we take some more, uh, some more um, you know, militant action? We also have a number of people who are quite persuaded. And I think as we all, are about public health concerns and wanting to make sure that we're being safe in what we do. And so uh, even you know, some, of the, some of the actions we have taken in defense of workers, we've had a great deal of debate about you know, the numbers and the process and the how we're gonna conduct it so that we're you know, within public guidelines. But we also just have, as I mentioned, uh, people are, uh, a, a large number of our, of our members, I think are also uh, dealing day to day. And they uh, and they are using their energy and their uh, their emotional energy, their psychic energy, their physical energy to simply get through the day, do their jobs, do them safely, look after their own children, think about their own parents. So it's a real range of things uh, that we got going. Um, but I will say that, um, and, and you know, I think you know the labor movement is one where there are different approaches, that different players take when we're talking about education. Of course, we're, you know, we're the largest union that represents a, a huge number of staff in schools, but there are many other unions that represent many other people in schools. Uh, and you know, we, all of us, uh, you know, people have been working together, trying to coordinate, trying to make sure we're talking together, trying to make sure we have a common approach, because uh, it also makes best sense, I think, if we can do these things together. And I think as the frustration level grows, people's willingness to understand that in fact uh, we may have no other option uh, but to ramp up, uh, you know, to express the displeasure, not just displeasure, the danger that people are being exposed to, the danger the children are being exposed to um, uh, by doing something More than just, you know, we are trying to do our best. We put out press releases and we write op eds and we write to government and we organize with parents and we do Zoom meetings and we have webinars and we do those things and that's good. But it may, it may, we may be quickly coming to a time when we need to do more than that.
0: Speaking to Fred Hahn, uh, head of uh, Ontario's largest public union, QP. Um, and, uh, and just stalwart for social justice over the years, I have to say. Um, so, so, Fred, as, as you were speaking, I was thinking of what is, it, what is it like to be you and dealing with this new government, um, you know, and its various ministries, because your workers cover a few. Um, and, and you, of course, dealt with, the, the, you know, the liberal government before that. You know, maybe talk about some, you know, what are the similarities? What are the differences? Talk. Talk to sure, sure.
2: I mean, I I, uh, I was uh, very uh, proud to be the president of our union when the Liberals, both uh, uh, Delta McGinty and then Kathleen Wynne were in power. One of the things that was interesting, I guess, or com- in contrast, the Liberals would talk to us agnosium. In fact, They'd be happy to have a meeting. They'd invite us to all kinds of things. There could be a round table about a round table about a round table. You could talk about all kinds of things. And they would always listen to you. And sometimes they'd even shake their heads knowingly like they agreed. And then we'd see very little action. Uh, There's been a stark contrast with the Ford conservatives. I've yet to meet with the premier of the province as the president of the largest union in Ontario, not just the largest public sector union. We are the largest union in the entire province. We represent 280,000 members. I've written to him several times. I've never even gotten a response, not even a thanks for writing, gee, maybe. Never met with the minister of labor, uh, either, any of them. Like, uh, you know, uh, we, we wrote to them and, Uh, Hey, uh, you know, Monty McNaughton called me on my cell phone and said, gee, I got your letter and it sure would be good to meet. Never met with them. Never once. Um, We, uh, as you'll know, there's been a number of announcements and a number of initiatives that have to do with long term care, that have to do with hospitals, that have to do with schools. The process that we've been exposed to as a union is pretty much uh, like just what happened the other day. Uh, The government made an announcement that it was going to dedicate money to more long-term care beds, which sounds like, you know, it sounds like a not a bad thing. They literally call us and tell us, we'd like to talk to you at two o'clock. And we say, uh, okay, what's it about? It's about long-term care. All right. We go on a call, a Zoom thing or whatever, and they tell us what they're going to do at 2.30. Uh, or to 15, sometimes we get 15 minutes. Uh, They just tell us, this is what the announcement's gonna be. There is no consultation we have from the beginning of this pandemic, written to them, requested, asked, pleaded, begged uh, that, you know, if you listen to the people who actually do the jobs frontline, you might actually come up with some better ideas about how to handle what's happening on the ground. Uh, So there simply is uh, no real consultation here, nor has there really ever been. Um, And, you know, just quickly on this long-term care announcement, they announced that they're building thousands of beds. It sounds like a good thing, except more than a third of them are in for-profit facilities. Uh, there is no attached guarantee that these jobs will be full-time jobs. So we're going to replicate the part-time occasional work that's there, that's low paid without access to paid sick time uh, in, you know, with a third of them being for profit. Like we've all just seen this horror film, eh? <laughs> and it like it has a, a horrible ending for our parents and grandparents, for people in long-term care, a ter- like ho- a horrible circumstance for the people who, who work in these facilities. So it actually makes no sense to create more of that with, with our public money. Um, that's really what they announced yesterday. And like I said, you know, no real consultation, no real discussion, uh, no real uh, listening to us. Um, you know, They do occasionally respond to us. You might have noticed that they have agreed, you know, they'll agree that we need to do more. You know, we, our school board folks pushed hard for asymptomatic testing in schools. And the minister said, we're going to do asymptomatic testing in schools. And, and then they didn't really do it. Uh, They said they were going to do it, but they didn't really do it. Uh, You know, so our, in schools, in health, in, social services, our people are doing their best to push for uh, better. Uh, and sometimes the government even says it's going to do some of the things we ask for. Um, the, but the, you know, the proof is always in the pudding. So it's been frustrating. Um, sure, it's frustrating, but it's actually dangerous. Uh, during the, the largest global health and economic uh, crisis that any of us have lived through, um, during this time, when you actually have this pool of folks who live in communities, every community, large and small across the province, who have been clear, like they wanna be part of the solution here. They wanna help. They wanna figure it out and help. They wanna help their neighbors. They wanna help their families. They got they got ideas and solutions. They, they wanna do that. And to be systematically ignored for more than a year, uh, uh, it is frustrating, you bet, but it's actually, uh, it's quite telling about who the current government is and it's actually quite dangerous. Why are we entering the third wave, eh? Uh, it's not just their ends of concern, it's chronic political failure on behalf of the provincial government.
0: Yes, uh, talking to Fred Hahn, uh, head of uh, Ontario's biggest union and biggest public union as well, CUPE, um, about the state of being, you know, essential workers out there and frontline workers, um, which is to risk their lives for us. So um, uh, just remember that wherever you are and wherever you interact with them. Um, I know in long-term care, um, I mean, some 14,000 of the 22,000 people that Canada's lost have been lost in long-term care i mean that's the simple reality and now we're seeing an explosion of the same sort of reality in our school system um uh, and again um, should have been on march break could have been on march break work <laughs> on march break um and now we're seeing it with a vaccine rollout uh you know uh, which is a disaster has been a disaster um uh, and that's really the front line against the third wave, which. We should have, could, we could have not had the third wave, folks. Um, so truly, we're talking about lives lost here. Um, uh, let's talk about that, Fred, because we've seen the city take uh, the province to court, the Supreme Court. Won't know how that um, you know lands for a while uh, around their interference with Toronto City Council. And who sits there and who represents uh, whoever? Um, what about the legal, uh, you know, possibilities there? Um, um, what's what's happening on that front? Because literally, lives have been lost in these circumstances. Some of your members, I'm sure. Um, so, what what about that?
2: Yeah, I um I do uh, want to start by saying that we have lost members. In fact, uh, a number of folks. All of the all of our members in Ontario who have passed away have been Black and racialized folks who work frontline. The majority of them in healthcare, but from my own home local, I was a I worked at community living Toronto. I worked with people with developmental disabilities. That was my frontline job, and I'm still a member of my local union. And there were two members of my local union uh, who uh, who contracted COVID and who passed away. As an example, many of us tragically have these stories, um, and uh, you know. Uh, I'm a firm believer in fighting on all fronts, Uh, you know, uh, use every tool in the toolbox. And so we must talk to folks in communities and mobilize. We must apply political pressure. We must use technology to do it and we got to use the courts. Uh, And so I'm glad that the city of Toronto is proceeding um, because, you know, if we look at what Doug Ford did in the middle of a municipal election by chopping the city council, uh, you know, that is an affront to democracy, sure. It was also about attacking uh, the possibility to have a more representative council. The people who ended up not being able to offer or who uh, did offer for election and against incumbents who, you know, had lots of already built up faith from folks in their communities, uh, they were Black and racialized and indigenous folks who we could, we had it, we lost such an opportunity to start to have a council that actually represented people in the city of Toronto. So there's a huge human rights and equality and equity component to what they did there. Uh, And it's one of the things that I'm, I know those arguments are gonna be made and it's uh, because our union, uh, in, in the early days of that, was actually part of this challenge around that. And, uh, and uh, we found, uh, helped to find plaintiffs and stuff. We, are, we also have a legal case against Bill 124. This is legislation that interferes with free collective bargaining. It says that any public sector workplace can't negotiate a wage increase, Well, any increases, whether wages, benefits, anything, all of it together can't be more than 1% a year. Um, and uh, that existed on the books before the pandemic. We started uh, with, through the Ontario Federation of Labor, there are 70 different unions and employee employee associations and organizations who have a joint um, uh, complaint against that legislation because it fundamentally violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the freedom of association, the right to free collective bargaining, uh, and that's just not my opinion. There was a similar piece of legislation in Manitoba that the court there and the Supreme Court found to have violated that. We have much faith in uh, that that will happen here in Ontario. But it's also ironic eh, that we're challenging this pre, this legislation that happened before the pandemic, that during the pandemic, the government has acknowledged that people are underpaid so much so that they've induced uh, introduced now twice this quote unquote pandemic pay or pay bumps or you know to different job classes um, you, you know and um, it's going to be really hard for the government never mind talking about the you can talk about the constitution and we're going to do that but now you're going to have to explain if you thought 1% is good enough why are you giving people a $4 an hour bump like you know and why are you quoted as saying you'd give them the bank if you could uh, you know, I think there's a growing recognition that, you know, there's the fit, there's there's the constitutional rights argument, yes, but I think, I believe there's a growing recognition that if you're going to work in a long-term care facility looking after my mother, you deserve to be paid more than 16 or 17 bucks an hour. If you're gonna work in a school supporting my child, you deserve to make more than 17 or 18 bucks an hour. If you're gonna work in a group home supporting some of the most vulnerable people and ensuring that they actually have access to participate in our community, you deserve respect for that care work and that deserves to be paid better. If we can pay, look, you know, the private sector, you know, capitalism can pay basketball stars all kinds of millions of dollars. I, you know, I'm not, I, none of our members are necessarily asking for that, although I, I often think they deserve it. But I think that we could understand that the, that the systems we've had for some time simply don't recognize this kind of care work appropriately. That the folks who are teaching and supporting and looking after our children deserve good solid wages with full-time jobs and paid sick time and access to a pension plan the same thing is true in long-term care the same thing's true in community and home care the same thing's true for people who work in shelters with those with people living through homelessness the same thing's true for people who are supporting people there's so many jobs that are so fundamentally important to our society that have been undervalued for so long and if there's one good thing that comes out of this pandemic uh, I hope it is that people never forget, never forget how important these jobs are. And jobs like people who work in grocery stores and people who work in, like, there are private sector jobs that have been historically undervalued, that are also temporary jobs, that also don't have access to paid sick time. And it is well past time for us to not just recognize it, but to join arms, private sector, public sector, downtown Toronto, Kenora. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what job you do. We all gotta just say like enough's enough here. Can we start paying people appropriately? Can we demand that they have full-time work? Can we demand paid sick leave for everyone so that not just during a health crisis, but you know to avoid <laughs> becoming worse, but just in general, people shouldn't have to go to work if they're sick. You know, These are basic things that some of us have talked about for some time, but I think now more people are hearing about, thinking about, supportive of, and we got to use that that honestly, if there's, if there's one good thing that can come out of all the hardship of the last year, let it be that. Let it be that we will not stand anymore for what we had in the past, that we will demand better in the future.
0: Speaking to Fred Hahn, uh, the ever-eloquent Fred Hahn, <laughs> of our, our largest union here in Ontario. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo. Um, just have a few minutes left. As you were speaking, I was thinking of uh, how wealthy our billionaires have become uh, the the pandemic profiteers. Uh, uh, I think I saw a stat, and and you know, I'm I I've got i do not have exact numbers, but it was something like you know a few decades ago, it was like the salary differential was like fifty five to one or something, the wealthiest person to the poorest person. Now it's like three hundred and something to one. I mean, um, and and wages have been pretty stagnant for many people. Middle class emptying out, as we all know. I mean the most people now can't afford to buy a house the old middle class you know you know uh, (laughs) measures like owning a house so you know having a car in the driveway those things not available to to most people with most jobs right now um and you know as this pandemic comes to an end and as you know what subsidies there are come to an end um it's going to be dramatic and I, I mean, I live in hope like you, Fred, but I I see austerity ahead. I see, you know, that that's where, you know, Uncle Doug is going to go. Um, it's going to be austerity, right? Uh, and, and Trudeau probably too. So, I mean, give us, I we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, what's Q P going to do if that happens?
2: No doubt they'll try it. Uh, no doubt they'll try it. So, uh uh, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to do everything we can to organize our members with their neighbors in every community to say, no frickin' way. We're not taking it. We are not taking it. We have taken it for too long. Our members for the last 10 years have, have when they have been able to negotiate wage increases have negotiate wage increases below inflation. They have already fallen further behind and that's people in the union, Never mind the people not in a union. So, uh, We have, and what we have to do is raise the expectations of our members and of our neighbors and of our family members for too long. We have been fed a line. Well, it's just what you got to do the economy, eh? It's about the economy. It's about the GDP. And you know, I think it's time we started to remind ourselves. Galen Weston and Loblaws is making billions upon billions of dollars, extra, on top of the billions they were already making. And that's true at Amazon. It's true at Shoppers Drug Mart. And it's true at like, and so you know what? Um, We have taxes for a reason. Uh, And we've also been poisoned to think they're bad. But here's the truth, what are taxes? Taxes are our collective ability to take wealth and redistribute it. And that's what we gotta do. Look, there's so much to do, but I am quite hopeful. And I know this, you can count on CUPE to be there to push back 100%. We have had enough, our members have had enough, our communities have had enough, and we deserve so much more.
0: Thank you, Fred.